Good evening. Good evening. It's really good to be with you tonight. My name is David Swanson. I'm the pastor of New Community Covenant Church, Bronzeville. I want to ask uh, our Bronzeville family to stand up briefly so Logan Square, you can see who is here from, uh, from Bronzeville tonight. Thank you. Uh, a, a word of welcome to, to you as well. If you happen to be a guest this evening, we are uh, so thankful that you are uh, choosing to worship with us tonight. Uh, tonight is a seven last words service, and for some of you that will be familiar, and for others of you this might be uh, a new experience. Uh, it has been long the tradition in the Christian church to recognize Jesus' seven last sayings as recorded in different ones of the gospel accounts of his life. And then in more recent historical memory, uh, it was the tradition of some African-American congregations to hold a seven last words service, uh, often on Good Friday, where seven different preachers would invite the congregation to consider, to place themselves there on the scene, on that shadowy night as Christ made his way to the cross. And so we're going to invite you to our own version of that this evening. We have seven different preachers from our congregation uh, in Bronzeville. Let me introduce them to you now so that they don't have to spend a lot of time doing that uh, when they come up. But moving from the first word through the seventh, Brittany Poku will start us off, followed by Sarah Woody, and then Valerie Chow Tao, and then Kevin Swanson. Yes, he is my dad. Richard Wilson, Hannah Sobek Kim, and then Pastor Michelle Dodson. Did I get everybody? I think I got everybody. Uh, the man who just said hallelujah is our superintendent of the Central Conference, Danny Martinez. We're glad to have you with us this evening as well, superintendent. Thank you for joining uh, with us. I, I want to say a brief word to our preachers this evening. Uh, you, the congregation, will be the beneficiaries of their preparation and their prayer and their preaching uh, for the next few minutes. And so I, I just ask that you would grant me a minute to say a word to our preachers uh, before they come. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 50, reads, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. I was talking with Brittany earlier today, and I mentioned to her that it's my sense, and again, I'm speaking to just those of you who will preach. It is my sense that we live in a world that understands itself to mostly inhabit a closed universe. 
that we mostly can make our way through this life by what our eyes can see, by what our ears can hear, by what our noses can smell, by what our skin can touch. We mostly make our way through this life based on what we experience in this life. We come then to a passage like this one, and if we're paying any kind of attention, it ought to strike us as very, very strange indeed. Because apparently the universe is not closed. Uh, apparently the, the, the ceiling doesn't go all the way across. Apparently the skies can still tear themselves open in the presence of their creator. And so I want to invite those of you who will share with us tonight, who will preach to us tonight, to preach the skies open for us tonight. And I don't mean to preach by the power of your personality. I don't mean to preach by the power of your preparation or even your prayer. I invite you tonight to preach the skies open by your simple conviction that there is a God who took on flesh, who lived and dwelled among us, who chose to take on all of us, and then who went to the cross for us and for our salvation. And that on that cross, as our Savior breathed his last breath, the, the earth shook. And the skies tore themselves open, and dead people came back to life. Sisters and brothers, our preachers tonight, that is the power that you preach to us tonight. It is nothing about you. It is nothing that you can conjure up in yourselves. But you stand before a hungry and a thirsty people tonight. You stand before people in my right church who've gone through some stuff over the past couple of years. And so we do not need you, but we do need a word from the Lord tonight. So trust the word that our God has given to you. However unfinished it may seem, however unprepared you might feel, trust the word that our God has given to you tonight. Let the church say amen. Spirit of the living God, we say thank you for the gifts that you give to the people of God. We say thank you that you raise up among us women and men who are willing to have themselves cracked open before you, poured out before you, that your people might find living waters. We thank you for our sisters and brothers tonight. We thank you for their diligence before you, their faithfulness before you. But most of all, we thank you that they have been recipients of the grace of the Jesus they will now preach to us tonight. So we pray that you would bless them, that you would fill them, that you would protect their minds and their hearts in Christ Jesus. In the spirit of the living God, would you now be the interpreter of the word that is preached to the hearts that are hungry and thirsty before you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you join me in welcoming Brittany Poku?
Good evening, church. So let's turn to scripture. In the book of Luke, chapter 23, starting at verse 33, the word of God reads, actually, I'm going to start at 32. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leader scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, that's my mother sending me encouragement right now. Um, <laughs> um, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So when I received this assignment, I, my first thought was that the Holy Spirit and Pastor David need to stay out of my business. And the reason, the, the reason for that is that this word of Jesus, the first word from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, convicts me on multiple levels. First, it convicts me in how much I need certainty to interpret scripture. This particular verse, depending on you know, your Bible, sometimes appears in brackets because it doesn't appear in many of the most authoritative ancient manuscripts, causing some folks to wonder, did Jesus actually even say this word? Which makes it hard to preach, right? It's like, how am I gonna preach something that Jesus might have not said? Then it's also questionable because different scholars interpret who the them was differently. So Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who's the them? Is it the soldiers who are crucifying him in that moment? Is it the chief priests or otherwise represented as Jews in general who led him to be in this predicament? Or is it the soldiers who mock him or the people who stand by? Each scholar has a different interpretation. And so as I read each of them, and, or not all of them, but as I read the things I could, I just had more questions than answers. But what came up in this is how what they wanted to see dictated what they wanted to include in scripture. So some of the folks who argued for not putting the this particular word of Jesus in scripture, their rationale was, well, you know, in this, he's forgiving the Roman soldiers. Therefore, um, increasing the blame for the Jews. So by putting it there, we're making it clear that the Jews are to blame. So that's one particular re reason why folks would do it. But on the other hand, there's folks who left it out because they're like, wait, no. If Jesus is forgiving the Jews, that means his prayer wasn't answered because the 
temple was destructed not long after, as Jesus had predicted, you know, on his way into Jerusalem. So their reasons for including it or not including it was based on their theology. Which then leads me to where I am right now. I wish I had some answers as to what this text says and what it means and what, who Jesus was referring to when he said them. And I wish I could sort through the confusingness of they do not know what they're doing. Cause like, as far as I know, in order to do something, you kind of need to know, like you have to be thinking in some way. And like soldiers who were professional killers knew how to kill and like the chief priests knew what they were doing also. And so I wish I could explain this in a way that made sense, but I can't. All that I can proclaim is that we serve a God who forgives. And sometimes we have to ask him to forgive when we can't say, I forgive ourselves. And so this is a comfort to me. I wonder why Jesus turned to God and said, Father, forgive them, when Jesus himself was able to forgive sins. And so in this, perhaps Jesus, who shared our humanity, he was hungry like us, he got angry like us, perhaps he also suffered for some through some unforgiveness like us, maybe. But even if that's not the case, we can trust that God answered Jesus' prayer from the cross, forgive them, because we are standing here. We are still breathing. God hasn't struck us down. He's, he's allowed scripture to exist throughout the centuries to continue to remind us of who he is, even when the world does not want us to know who God is. And so in this, even if we are not quite able to replicate Jesus in forgiving those who hurt us, in praying for those who hurt us. May we be comforted in Father, our Father God, forgiving us and thereby making room for us to be in relationship with him making room for us to be molded and shaped by him, that one day we could end up saying, we forgive you. Let's turn to God. Almighty God, thank you for your word that goes beyond everything. May you continue to work in me and in us. Amen. My name's Sarah Woody. It's nice to be with you all tonight. Um, I'm gonna just pick up right where Brittany left off in Luke 23, not in the same energy, but I will pick <laughs> um, in the same verse. <laughs> Luke 23, starting in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? 
Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Imagination gets a bad rep. It's relegated often to the fantasies of children. But Albert Einstein said that imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited to all we know and understand, while imagination embraces the entire world and all there will ever be to know and understand. And as adults, we might not get as lost in our heads with stories about pirates and princesses, but our imagination remains just as important because it opens us up to possibility. In our text, we see many imaginations at play. The first criminal can't imagine redemption. He mocks Jesus and he says, if you're really the Christ, save us and yourself. His lack of imagination demands proof and evidence. And for the second criminal, he recognizes his own guilt and Jesus' innocence. By the grace of God, he can imagine that Jesus will enter a kingdom, a truth that even the disciples can't fully understand as they look up at their Savior on a cross. But Jesus, but God, (laughs) exceeds both of their imaginations. The second criminal who we'll focus on asks only to be remembered in Jesus' kingdom But Jesus promised him presence in paradise. Far more than offering some escapist fantasy, he is providing assurance of a reality, no matter how distant it might feel to that present moment. And like Brittany, when I was assigned this word, um, I laughed cynically. My name is Sarah, so it's what I do. That's a Bible joke for you. Jesus is hanging on a cross. It's a form of capital punishment intentionally designed for maximum pain and torment. Every breath that he takes is painful and costly, which for all of the words that we'll hear tonight adds a certain weight to what we're hearing. And at the peak of his suffering, I'm like, how can you seemingly literally waste your breath to talk of paradise? He knew, he knew that he wouldn't hang on that cross forever. But in my experience, knowing that it gets better does nothing to ease the torment of the present moment. Suffering cuts our imagination short. One way that I know Jesus is God is because his imagination supersedes his suffering. He will abundantly exceed our expectations of redemption in timing, in geography, and in relationship. He will redeem when we don't expect, where we don't expect, and he will provide a relationship with him far beyond our wildest dreams. The second thief knows he is condemned. He recognizes that Jesus is innocent, and he imagines that when they both face physical death, they will meet quite different eternities. And so humbly, he begs Jesus to remember him on that distant day when Jesus enters his kingdom. But Jesus subverts his expectations, and he says, no, today. And I wonder, do we have the imagination to believe that Jesus' redemption makes a difference to our life right now, and not only at the moment of our death? 
The second thief asks Jesus to remember him. Being a passing thought in the Messiah's mind is salvation enough. And this humility is noble to a degree, but Jesus wants to go further, right? He says, you will be with me. Jesus, God incarnate, is promising presence and relationship. And if our hearts leap at that thought, mine does. I also want to imagine, what would the disciples be thinking as they hear Jesus say that? They who had fought about who would sit at Jesus' right hand in heaven, now this criminal is going to be the one to go with him there? This reviled criminal? Is it any surprise that Luke, the only Gentile author of the New Testament, is the one who writes this down? He's the only one who writes it down. He might have been familiar with being reviled. I wonder, do we ask Jesus merely to remember us when he, in fact, invites us to be with him? And I wonder, do we have eyes to see the others that he is including in that invitation? The second criminal in this story would have known that Jesus had talked of a kingdom, and that's what got him here. And some translations of this text call the two criminals revolutionaries. I wonder if this revolutionary once dreamt of his own kingdom. But now he surrenders his dreams of domination to Jesus, asking only to be remembered in another man's kingdom. And a third time, Jesus interrupts and exceeds his imagination. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. No more kingdom divisions, no more wars for power, for control, no more oppression or violence. We shall be restored fully to the goodness of the Garden of Eden. Shalom is a familiar Hebrew word that often gets translated to peace, but it has a richer meaning of wholeness and flourishing and things operating as they were intended to be. Paradise. And I wonder, do we want Jesus to enact vengeance for our kingdoms? Do we want him to give us domination? Or will we allow him to lead us into something greater, maybe even paradise itself? When Jesus invites us to imagine presence today in paradise, it's not to escape. He hears his wailing mother at the foot of the cross. He sees the silent tears streaming down his beloved disciple's face. He feels the wounds on his back reopening with every gasping breath. There is no violence, no oppression, no injustice, no suffering that escapes his notice. It is from this very awareness that he invites us to a richer imagination. He invites us to entertain the possibility that redemption will come sooner than we expect, maybe even today. It will lead us to places we don't expect, maybe even a paradise of shalom. And it will save us from our destructive fate, instead making possible a relationship with the creator of the universe. And so as I close in prayer, I wonder, from the crucible of our own suffering, will we continue to imagine with the crucified Christ? Let me pray. Lord, thank you that in the midst of your suffering, you did not lose sight of your imagination. That you knew what you were doing was for what was possible, not what you knew. I pray that we would answer your same invitation to that imagination. Amen.
These lights are pretty bright. All right. Um, well, the third word of Jesus is found in John 19, and I'm going to start reading from verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of, wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So in the verses immediately prior to what we just read, Jesus has been through physical torture and mental anguish of, crucifix of crucifixion. He carried his cross up a hill with people jeering at him. He put the cross down. He was laid on the cross and had nails pounded into his feet and into his wrists. And then that cross was lifted off the ground and nailed into the ground, pounded into the ground so it could stand up straight. The weight of his entire broken and bruised body hanging on those nails. Soldiers had gambled and cast lots for his clothes. Jesus is in pain, not just physical pain, but mental and emotional and spiritual pain. He's struggling for breath. As Sarah said, every breath costs something. Jesus was practically naked, his dignity stripped. He knows that death is coming. But the pain and the anguish and the struggle for breath are very, very real. They are present with him. And Jesus is alone. He knows that the God that he belongs to is not going to save him this time. And in all of his humanity, he hangs there, writhing in pain. And he sees his mother. And he sees the disciple that he loved, which traditionally is understood as John. He sees his auntie, and he sees two other Marys that have been following him. They're all standing, standing firm at the foot of the cross, watching and waiting. He sees them in their pain, in their grief, feeling the pain of seeing one that they love being tortured and broken and in pain. They see the one that, that they love hanging on a cross, being executed by the state. And they're grieved. They feel the pain of somebody they love being punished unjustly for a crime that they did not commit. And they're grieved. But they've shown up, and they're standing there on their own two feet and they showed up. And when they show up, Jesus sees his people. Jesus sees his community. Jesus sees his village. And he sees them standing nearby, close enough, standing in solidarity with and for him, because he can't stand. As people, as the soldiers are casting lots for his clothes, he sees them 
as they're making a mockery of the clothes on his body, Jesus sees his people fixed and placed, standing up straight as he's slowly being executed. And his people know too what's happening. They know that the end of Jesus' life is coming. They know that it's time that Jesus will not survive this act because nobody survives crucifixion. But they stand there and they show up and they stand there with him when many of the disciples minus John had fled and had gone. They're present with Jesus in his time of need. And then in a divine act of care and compassion and direction, Jesus is ministering from the cross. Jesus looks at his mother, the one who birthed him as a human being, the one that cared for him and loves him. Jesus looks at her, Jesus looks at his auntie, Jesus looks at John, and he tells his mother that John is now her son. And he tells John that Mary is now her mother, his mother. Jesus tells them to take care of each other. Jesus is doing something new even in the midst of his own suffering and pain. Jesus is expanding the boundaries of family. He's saying, even though you have no relationship to each other, you need to show up for each other. Jesus is expounding, expanding the boundaries of community, of what it means to be the people of God. And so Jesus tells Mary she's also to care for and love John as her son. Right? There's an act of mutuality, an act of care from both sides. And Jesus uses the presence of his people, of his village, some biologically related to him and some not, some that he met in the last few years. Jesus uses this as an object lesson for us, right, for the people of God. At the cross, Jesus is being unjustly oppressed and executed by the Roman Empire. And yet at the cross, Jesus calls us to show up in the midst of oppression, in the midst of marginalization, in the midst of suffering. Because Jesus is there with his people, and his people are there with him. At the cross, we're reminded that Jesus is present in the midst of suffering, his own and the suffering of those he loves. Mary and the others did not show up with any preconceived notion that they could fix this problem, that they could stop what was going to happen. They showed up because that's all they could do, and they showed up and stood firm to be present with Jesus in the time that the, he needed them. Brothers and sisters, today as we sit and wait for the resurrection of all things that is to come, as we sit in the midst of these days that are far from what they ought to be, Jesus calls us to create a community of belonging for all of God's people. As we sit today waiting for resurrection, not just the one in a couple days, <laughs> but the one that's to come. Let us show up for those who are outside our circles, the ones that we scorn, the ones that are objects of our own rejection that we want nothing to do with, because Jesus shows up for them. And let us show up for those that are in the midst of pain, near us and far away, 
Because in the midst of grief and pain, presence matters, especially when there's no solutions. Let us put aside our own pretensions or fear or whatever that keeps us and show up. We show up because we trust that God is forming a new community, that God is forming a new people, that God is forming us in the midst of suffering, that what we do now and how we show up now matters in the age to come, whether we see it or not. Jesus knew what was coming, but a lot of his people didn't. And we show up and we all play our part and we wait for resurrection. As we wait for resurrection, God is in the midst of grief. God is in the midst of pain. God in Christ is literally in the midst of systemic violence, of oppression, of continuous cycles of injustice. God in Christ is literally in the midst of forming something new, of expanding the boundaries of the people of God. And as we wait for resurrection, God is calling us to show up for each other our neighbors, as he showed up for us. And so as we sit today waiting for resurrection, let us also sit in this mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. has died Christ will come again how do you know it was the blood of Jesus though it was that saving blood of Jesus it was a powerful blood of Jesus it was that one drop that he shed on Calvary for all of us for all of us Would you sing that with us? 
want to thank my three sisters for starting us off on this journey tonight. You have blessed us richly. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A troubling statement for many of us. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father forsaking, abandoning, renouncing God the Son. It's troubling. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he gives a bit of clarity. He says that God, God the Father, God made him, God the Son, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Son becomes sin. God the Father forsakes his Son, albeit temporarily, so that no child of his will ever have to utter those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if I were to say to you this evening, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and stop right there, most of us in our minds would fill out the rest of that phrase. We're familiar with that hymn. Some of us might know the writer of that hymn and the situation behind it, and we could, in our heads, go through the rest of that hymn. Jesus in his near-death condition, body-racked with pain, dehydrated, barely able to speak, quotes the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, any Jewish person hearing those words would, number one, know where they came from, because the Psalms were the book of prayer for the Jewish people. And many had committed these psalms to memory. And number two, they would be familiar with the rest of the psalm. And they knew it didn't stop after that first line. We are probably less familiar with Psalm 22 than the Jewish people in that day would have been. So let me familiarize us a bit with Psalm 22. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has melted Turned to wax and melted 
within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lot for my garments. Verse 19 begins with the word but. Pay attention when there's the word but in Scripture because in verse 19, the psalmist says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cries for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will pro proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Amen. Good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Richard Wilson, and uh, I'm excited to, to be here with you all this, this evening. Uh, hear now uh, the word of the Lord from the book of John, John chapter 19, beginning at verse 28, reads as follows. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. Father, we thank you for how you have shown tonight that your word is the means by which you make your person and your presence, your plans and your purposes real to us, your people. It's our prayer, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On a hill outside of Jerusalem, the sky is painted gray with despair. Underneath the endless clouds hangs the thorn-crowned body of Jesus. His eyes are shut. 
muscles are torn. His lips are stained in crimson. The hours spent on the cross have led to severe dehydration. And so it's from this place of public humiliation and physical exhaustion that Jesus declares his thirst. But these are not the words of a desperate martyr. These are the words of a redeeming savior. Words of humanity spoken amid divinity. And it's the two natures of Christ that we seek to hold together this evening. For if we focus exclusively on the divinity of Christ, we risk painting God as a distant God, a God who is unapproachable and void of compassion. Yet if we rest primarily on the humanity of Jesus, we risk presenting God as only a wise teacher, a mere man whose words may be inspiring, but whose presence has little meaning in our lives. And so we seek to hold these two distinct natures of Christ together. For when Jesus declares his thirst, it is a confession of his humanity and an affirmation of his deity. First, it's a confession of his humanity. You know, one of the early heresies of the church was the belief that Jesus only appeared to be human and therefore did not experience the anguish and the agony of the crucifixion. Yet the truth of the gospel declares that redemption is only made possible through the suffering of Christ. On the cross, Jesus enters our pain. He enters our suffering and our brokenness. And therefore, we can be confident that the God to whom we pray is acquainted with our anxieties, familiar with our frailties, welcoming of our worry. He hears thee and he understands the groans of discontent emanating from hearts that long for heaven. He hears the silent prayers of the poor and the desperate cries of the abandoned. He mourns with those heartbroken by grief and pities those guilt-ridden by shame. You see, Jesus sees and he cares and he understands as no one else can. And so in this confession of humanity, we find a word of hope. God can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In this declaration of thirst, not only is it a confession of his humanity, but it's also an affirmation of his deity. When John records Jesus saying, I thirst, he adds that this was to fulfill the scripture. Here, John is referring to Psalm 69, verse, uh, verse 21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Uh, 
So this verse was fulfilled as prophecy when Jesus was offered vinegar to drink on the cross. And this verse and many others point to Jesus fulfilling prophetic history. In declaring his thirst, Jesus is affirming that he is the way of redemption. That he is the long-awaited Messiah, the author of salvation. And that he and he alone is able to quench the deepest longings of our hearts. We need to remind ourselves of this truth daily. For we are so easily discouraged by the cares of this world and so easily distracted by the things of this world that we neglect the fulfillment found in Christ. Instead, we embrace false notions of contentment, expecting relationships to satisfy our longings for love, hoping careers will fulfill our desires for significance, believing that more possessions will fill the emptiness aching in our souls. But this world, this world was never designed to satisfy our hearts. Only God can do that. And so therefore, we must approach the things of this life with a holy disregard, and we must look up to God with a holy desire. When Jesus declares his thirst, it is a confession of his humanity and an affirmation of his deity. He sympathizes with us continually, and he satisfies us completely. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And these two simple yet profound words, you remind us that you are with us, that you understand us, and you remind us that our resources in Christ are not simply promised, they are already possessed. And so we don't have to search for a love because in you we find a love that can't be defeated. In you we find grace that can't be limited. In you we find hope that can't be disappointed. And in you, Father, we find an eternity that can't be voided. We thank you, Father. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. I'm Hannah Sobek Kim. I used to have this reoccurring dream. And in this dream, I would find myself behind the wheel of a speeding car and uh, be going on some nameless expressway. And then I would discover that the brakes didn't work, that I would, I would press down and nothing was happening. And so panic would set in and I would seek to try to get control of this car that would just start careening all over the highway. And what was true about that season of life where I was having this dream more often was I had a lot of anxiety. And what interests me about that is the, the way that my subconscious chose to interpret that anxiety into this scenario. 
the scenario where I don't have control. The, the scenario where the things that I would normally trust, I can no longer trust. And I suppose that makes sense to me, that, that the, the counter of that, the times when I feel most protected, the times when I feel most safe is when I know who or what I can trust is in place. Well, when we get to uh, John chapter 19, it seems like things are careening out of control. It would seem like God's plan has gone awry. That, that everything leading up to that point is more what I might expect God's plan, how I would expect God's plan to unfold. That, that what John does is shows us many instances of where God, Jesus' ministry is accompanied by signs and wonders that point us to Jesus really is who he says he is. He really is the son of God. He really is the promised Messiah. But then it seems like things go off the rails. All of a sudden, Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested. In a sham trial, he is found guilty and sentenced to death. And then when we get to the verses that I'll get to in a second, we, we are actually bearing witness to Jesus dying. And if I had been a follower of Jesus at that time, I imagine some of the fears or doubts that I would have felt would have been, did I get this wrong? Did, was this not who I thought it was? Was this thing not the thing I thought it was? Was I foolish to put my faith and belief in this? And yet what John asserts to us is that God's plans were fulfilled by the willful sacrifice of Jesus. So reading from John chapter 19, verses uh, 28 through 30. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I will confess it is easier for me to imagine that God's plans are advancing, for me to sort of believe in that and to buy into that when it looks the way that I would expect it to look. When it is accompanied by things aligning, sort of powers are coming into the right places, influence is gaining, maybe money is going up, attendance, attention, all those things are lining up. But yet, how are we to understand when the opposite is true? When we are surrounded by chaos, when doubt is creeping in, when things seem to be breaking down and going the opposite way that we would expect, where is it that we look for Jesus in that, and where do we see God's plan? Well, my message for us today is this. Trust that God's got us by Jesus' sacrifice. In his utterance that it is finished, Jesus is reorienting us to what's actually happening. Jesus is showing us that in a situation where it would seem like Jesus has absolutely no agency. Like you would, you, would, you would read this and say Jesus is purely victim here. He has no control over what's happening. And in fact, if you read the larger passage here, that there are many people exercising their own agency in what's happening here. We see Pilate, who is exercising out of his arrogance, agency to maintain the, the existing power systems. We see the agency of the soldiers who are utilizing the existing power structure to gain things for themselves in the ways that they are uh, casting lots for Jesus' clothes. 
And even after Jesus' death, we see the religious leaders who are most interested in maintaining appearances and maintaining sort of the, the, the solemnity of, of what's happening rather than dealing with the actual injustice that's before their eyes. We see people acting out of, out of the agency and, and the thing that they are motivated by, and which, by the way, I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but I can find myself in the motivation of each of those things at different times. And, and so you would say that, that Jesus is the one who is the least able to do anything in this situation. And yet we are given indication of his agency in verse 30 when it says, he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit, that what we see is that even in death, it is Jesus who submits himself to death, not the other way around. And, and of course, that has to be true. That if Jesus is the Son of God, death cannot overcome him. He must submit to it. And, and as was laid out by, by Brother Richard, there are numerous instances in this broader passage of, of places where we are told, and this was what, so that scripture would be fulfilled. So there are different actions that happen, different things that, that take place. And, and something I want to note about that is that it, it is not as though somebody does something that's a curveball to God. Or, or, or there's some circumstance that, we, that, that God now has to adjust to and, and, and accommodate the plan. That God is sovereign throughout this, no matter what it looks like. That God is the one advancing his plan regardless of the motivations, however evil or broken they may be, of the others. And this sacrifice that we see Jesus make, this is not ornamental, as was noted by my brothers and sisters earlier. This is not some routine, check the box, go through the motions. That Jesus actually had to choose to sacrifice. And that the way in, Jesus, in which Jesus dies is the way that we all die. That we see that Jesus gave up his possessions in, in the ways that he lost his, his clothing to the soldiers. Jesus was, had to say goodbye to his loved ones in the ways that he addresses them. And even in the physical experience of death, Jesus is thirsty and, and, and as his body is shutting down, is wanting water. And so what we see in, in all of this is that in the ways that we might expect God's plan to advance, in the ways that we might expect that the way that that will look is all things aligning. Everything is, is, is coming together, that it is sort of the perfect time. And, may, and it, it could happen that way, but where, where we have all of the attention, all of the, everyone's agreeing with us. We're, all, we're, all, we're not facing opposition. We're getting increases in attendance, increase in fame, increase in money. That rather what Jesus offers us is to say, look not for those things but instead look to my broken body. Look to my spilled blood. This is the sacrifice that I offer you, and this is what will make you whole. And so we are to be reminded that when we find ourselves in the place of confusion, when we find ourselves in the place where, we, where it just feels like this got screwed up, this isn't right. This isn't the place where we are supposed to be. That we are not to look as those indicators to say, this is the sign that either God is present with me or God is not. Rather, we are to look and only look for Jesus. And as I was preparing for this sermon tonight, I felt like God put on my heart the brothers and sisters of New Community Bronzeville as well as the brothers and sisters of New Community Logan Square. And that for all of us, 
in these last two years, we have endured a global pandemic that has taken so much from us, whether in direct loss of ones that we love or just loss of opportunity, loss of hope, loss of connection. And at the same time that those things have been happening, we've experienced waves and waves of, of racial violence and racial injustice, both nationally that we have bared witness to, but also within our own city. And, and speaking specifically to my brothers and sisters of New Community Logan Square, the changes in church that have happened here and, and the uncertainty that that comes with. And that for all of us, that we could find ourselves in a place of, of, and the word that I felt like God specifically gave me was one of feeling tired. That we are here, we have survived, we are here. But Lord, we are tired. And what God spoke to in that place of tired is to say that that is the place where hopelessness can seep in. That is the place where we can start to doubt and say, God, is this really what you wanted? Is this really what was supposed to happen? And what I felt like God's message for us today is to say, a global pandemic is not bigger than Jesus. Systems of injustice and inequity, however steep they be, may be, are not bigger than Jesus. And even in the place where we are in confusion and where we feel lost, our own fears and our anxieties are not bigger than Jesus. And that if you find yourself in the place of confusion, if you find that yourself in the place of tired, the word that I believe Jesus has for you today is the same word that Jesus had here. A word that is to promise to us any place that we question, is God good for me? Is God good for my church? Will God's plans really advance? Jesus says not only yes, but it is finished. Please join me as we close in prayer. Jesus, even in the places that we resist looking only to you, even in the ways that, I, for myself, God, I'll say that I want it to look like success and, and, and things just working in the ways that I would imagine, where that feels easier, God. Even in that, Lord, I thank you that you say it's simpler than that. It is just you. And Lord, where, where we do feel tired, where we are broken, where we are confused, would you Help us to keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds fixed on you. Even where the signs would tell us that things are going off the rails, would we see you instead and see you standing in the middle, the work that you have done that is permanent and that we are secure in? Would you encourage us, Lord, as we go forward from this place? Amen. Good evening. Pray with me, please. And so, Father, I surrender all that I am and all that I have, all that I have prepared. I give it to you. Speak now, Holy Spirit. We, your children, are listening. Amen. 
And so I have the final word for you this evening, and it comes from um, Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So these words, just when you hear it, they can sound almost like um, the words of one who has given up. The words of one who has thrown up their hands and said, I can do no more, I'm done, I, uh, I, I, I give up. But I think the best way to understand these words that our Savior speaks is through the lens of John 13, verse 3. And this is the story of Jesus at the, the Last Supper with his disciples. And what he's going to do is wash his disciples' feet. But before we get there, the, the text reads this way. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So we heard a little bit about crucifixion tonight. You probably know something about crucifixion. It was um, a violent death. It was meant to be humiliating and painful, the most humiliating, the most painful. It was meant to terrorize the people who saw it. And so crucifixions took a long time. People would hang on those crosses and die over the span of days. You may recall from the text that when, when, when the authorities hear that Jesus has died already, they're, they're shocked. What? Because it wasn't supposed to happen that quickly. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus cries out these words from Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I want to submit to you tonight that these words are a statement of identity and they are a statement of trust. Jesus knew exactly who he was. And Jesus knew exactly where he was going. And Jesus, as our good brother Hannah just pointed out, Jesus was the one who decided when it was finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. See, these words spoken by our Savior remind us that in this world, we should absolutely expect nothing more than what it gave to our Savior. In this world, we should absolutely expect that we will experience suffering. We will experience hard times. Jesus prepared us for that. He said, hey, look, if they treat me like this, how do you think they're going to treat you? In this world, on this side of glory, we know what to expect. And yet these words are also a testimony. They testify to the truth of God's word that greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. <laughs> they testify to us, his people, that we are servants of a God who says both vengeance and victory are in my hands. They testify that we are the ones who have been given power, authority, and a sound mind into your hands. I commit my spirit. I cannot control this world. You cannot control this world. We together in our own power and in our own might cannot decide the fate of a single grain of sand. In my own strength, by my own might, I can do very little. 
but I have committed my spirit into the hands of the one who has defeated the power of sin and death. And so when this world feels too much for me to bear, when the relationships in my life feel broken beyond repair, when humanity's capacity for evil is on full display and I feel overwhelmed like my Savior on a cross, suffering, I can remember that into the Lord's hands I have committed my spirit. I have committed my life. And so I can say it is well with my soul. This is a declaration of trust. It is trust in the one who has said, I hold all power in my hands. It is trust in the one who said, in all things I work together for your good. It is trust in the one who has said, you are absolutely not defeated. Though it may look like that, you are absolutely not defeated. In fact, you cannot be defeated. <laughs> Father, into your hands <laughs> I commit my spirit. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Who are you? <laughs> Jesus knew the power and the authority that had been given to him. What has been given to you? If your confession on this night is that you have committed your hands, your, your spirit into the hands of the Lord, then what has been given to you is power, love, and a sound mind. What has been given to you is a promise that God's got you. <laughs> what has been given to you is a promise that it will absolutely be okay. <laughs> Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into whose hands have you committed your spirit? Pray with me. Oh God. <laughs> I thank you that you are always and at all times and in all things in control. I thank you that when we feel like we are being tossed to and fro, I thank you that when it looks like we are at the absolute darkest point in our lives, you are in control. You are the one who says when it is finished. You are the one who decides how it goes. You are the author and the finisher of our fate. And so, God, we declare tonight that we trust you to be exactly who you are. Help us, Holy Spirit, to know exactly who you said we are. Into your hands, O oh Lord, we give you all that we are. Amen. Come on.